Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, where we stick to the list for better or worse. I'm still getting used to that. This week we have started the first part of our two-week experiment into the Fast and the Furious franchise. We have watched The Fast and the Furious, the first movie in that saga. Well, next week Not to be confused Fast with Seven. Fast and Furious, which is inexplicably the fourth movie. Yes. Yes. It's the naming I can find be- that so irritating. Like yeah. genuinely it it irrationally annoys me. This is probably the franchise with titles that are gonna piss Lawson off the most. Because they're all over the shop. Do, do you think they'll ever get around to Fast and the Furious 20, The Revenge? They haven't done any revengeance or, like, repentance Redemption. nonsense. Redemption. And they have had a few opportunities for it. Yeah. Fast and the Furious Oh, they'll 15. do something. With the last one, they'll do something about the final Furious or something. The last the and the Furious? The Furious. The, lo- yes. the last of the Furious. The last <laughs> yes. of the Furious. We've got it, guys. Send your royalties to us. That Nailed has to it. be the final. Give me all your money, Paramount. Yes. The last of the Furious. And then they talk about... Oh. Oh. You know that clip that you sent us, Lawson, of The of the Rock flexing his muscles and breaking out of his arm cast? Mm-hmm. The cast and the Furious. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, before we get into our discussion on The Fast and the Furious, uh, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Well, actually, why don't we start off with something that we've all seen because we saw it together. We ventured out into the plague land and saw Chaos Walking, uh, the, the new film from Lionsgate. It is a science fiction adventure directed by Doug Lyman based on the Patrick Ness book, the Knife of Never Letting Go, uh, but really more broadly, the Chaos Walking Trilogy. It's set in the future. There's a human colony on a planet called New World, and this planet is unusual. It's got this phenomenon called the noise. Every male's thought is sort of broadcast outside their head in a little, like, purple cloud above them. And there's this guy named uh, Todd Hewitt, played by Tom Holland, a very Tom Holland-esque character. He lives in a settlement of men. All of the women have uh, been killed by alien creatures on the planet before the beginning of the movie. And there are no more women left on the planet. And a spaceship crash lands, a scout for the next wave of colonists, including Viola Eade. She's the only survivor on this scout ship. She's played by Daisy Ridley. And Todd ends up journeying off into the wilderness with her because he learns that a lot of what he thought is lies, that there are actually are other colonies on the planet, colonies with women still in them, and that the women in his particular colony were not... The, the, the native aliens were not as responsible for the deaths of these women as initially appeared. It's something more serious and well, something more sinister than that. Yeah. So why don't we just start off here? I mean, just broadly, what did you guys think of it? I liked it. I really liked it. Mm. I thought it was well acted. I I think they had good chemistry. Mads Mickelson was really fun in this as sort of the one guy who can really tap down on his noise. I, I liked Nick Jonas in this, oddly enough. I think he's, he's barely in it. <laughs> I know, but he's He's done a good job at sort of removing himself from being a Jonas brother. I think he's a pretty good actor. Daisy Ridley is fantastic in this as well. And I love the original conceit of hmm. you seeing these people. 
seeing and hearing these people's thoughts. It's a very cool premise. There's a lot going on there. Um, I do think it's a little awkward at times. It's it's a little goofy of visually presenting that idea that there's this little, like, word bubble, purple it's, word bubble floating over all of their it's heads. Not, it's not as cartoonish as you're making it out to be. They're not wily e. Coyote hoarding it's off a sign. It's kind of goofy, and the rules don't always make a whole lot of sense. I never really... I mean, it's one thing to... Okay, so if you're writing a book about that, it's one thing to have that written down and to visualize that in your head. But when you've got to literalize thought processes into the world like that in, in, a, mm. in a film, it, it often seemed inconsistent what thoughts were being broadcast and what thoughts weren't. Because there's a lot of... Because, look at it this way, we're always thinking, right? Yeah. We're, we're thinking about where we're going, well, we're thinking about... Maybe not Jean. Oh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a scene what that in the movie that would have been funny is him just walking and slowly being like, "Need to piss. I need to piss. I need to piss. I gotta go piss." See, my name if, is if my John name is had this my particular problem, then it would just be like an image of one of those wind-up monkeys with the symbols clashing their hands together over <laughs> and over like and over. It's like doing again. it all the time. Yeah, and like like blood trickling down from its eye because of the strain. Like it can't stop. It's so desperate, but it, it it looks to another person's thought bubble. Kill me. It is like you said, inconsistent because there were a lot of those incidental thoughts that were just we'd hear, mm. like move this way, keep going, keep going, sort of thing. An interesting thing about that is you can see in certain moments when they're walking, you see a sort of like a shadow of him of Todd walking in front of him, like in a potential path. Yeah, which he's I planning thought his path, yeah. Was a really, that was a really interesting idea that wasn't used enough. Because it would it would make it too messy on a... I know. Well, let, let's, let's be honest here. I think that... I really like this movie too. I liked it a lot, actually. But I feel like it's, it's a little restricted by being a two-hour film. Mm. I think that there's so much going on here with the themes and with the world and with the different concepts that it would have... I mean, obviously, a, a novel is ideal for a story like this, but it would have... It seems to me like the kind of thing that really should have been a TV show. Absolutely. Yeah. Give like us more time. Yeah, give us a lot more time. Give us time to explore these ideas and concepts, because there's a lot of cool themes going on. I mean, it, it strikes me fairly obviously as kind of a, a puberty parallel mm. on the part of Todd, that he is presented for the first time in his life with a woman. Like, he, he's mm. never seen a woman before, and not only that, but his thoughts are being broadcast to her at all times. Like, that's an interesting little allegory about the, the awkwardness, the social awkwardness of, of puberty. Then there's there's obviously the, the much darker allegory of the lone woman in mm. this world of, of men being victimised by these oppressed like by these men's thoughts that that they there's something darker about that and i don't think that like obviously tom holland is is the younger he's probably the youngest person in the colony he was born just before all of the women were killed but so he is you know the the naive sort of kind-hearted young guy that helps her out but i don't think that it's any of that it's any coincidence that of the middle-aged uh men in the colony the men who were there from the start, 
that it's the two that are implied to be gay that are the only ones yeah. that aren't a threat to her. Because you can even see that in... Because each of the sort of, like, colours and textures of each person's noise has that slight difference. You've got Todd's, which is kind of like a purplish, uh, more wispy thing. The preacher, his noise is practically making on him fire. look like he's on fire. <laughs> With, like, little flashes of lightning almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've which got, is a really cool effect. You've got the mayor, played by Matt Mickelson, who just has... When we do see it, it's just circling around his head. Yeah, he's in total control, he's in total of, it control of it at all times. But when you see the crowd of men um, like charging forward, it's like emanating darkness yeah. out from them. And there's, there's a lot going on here. And I would... I mean, we, we kind of had this conversation coming out of the theatre is what becomes of COVID movies, right? That yeah. you could see two ways that this could go. Either... A lot of things that wouldn't otherwise have gotten sequels will get sequels because people will give it the benefit of the doubt and say, well, maybe it would have been really successful if there wasn't a once-in-a-century epidemic on. But you can also see the other side of it where we just don't get very many sequels to COVID movies. They could do a a really interesting thing and actually give a shit about box office numbers in Australia. Yeah, yeah. And actually oh, see. Yeah, you could you could focus more heavily on specific countries that haven't been hit that hard by the pandemic. Like Australia, New Zealand. Even see then what... you've got to do it on a curve. I mean Sure. Sure. Obviously, but it's it would be a way of actually seeing audience interest. And then if you add that onto, you know, you know, early releases on digital for rental or purchase. I I'm then not optimistic well. about this film getting any kind of follow up. It's oh, of course not. Being critically poorly received. It's not gotten good numbers, at least public numbers in in sales and box office. Uh, it was heavily troubled production. It was actually filmed primarily in 2017. They had reshoots. They had restructurings. It was rough going. And I feel like maybe this is a Percy Jackson and the Olympians situation where 10 years from now, Netflix or Disney Plus or one of these places will go ahead and they'll make it a TV show that it should have been in the first place. And... I wouldn't want it to be Disney Plus because like, I've, I have uh, looked up the story of the novels. Yes, should be noted that the novels deviate pretty differently. They the do. Movie deviates from the novels. Like, we're seeing... It, it, it kind of feels like they, they took the whole trilogy yeah. and tried to condense it into one movie but also made a bunch of changes. The character of Mads Mikkelsen is the overarching villain of the trilogy yeah. and a lot of the stuff that he does in this film and and the way that he interacts with things is, is much different in the books. I, it should be noted that this movie is perfectly standalone. Like, it, it has yeah. an ending. There's no cliffhanger here. Uh, yeah, so the movie is more an a, a sort of like adult thriller. It's it's less young adult fictiony than the books are because the books are very much of that ilk of Hunger Games or those kinds of things. Like the characters are younger. Yeah, he's, Tom Holland's character is thirteen in the first book. Yeah, whereas this is Todd Hewitt. He's eighteen years old and he never fucking learned how to read. I think he's like mid twenties. <laughs> Tom Holland yeah. is. And it's like it—it it is a more like adult take on it. It is a lot darker than it seems like the books are. 
Yeah, one thing that sort of jumped out at me is whenever we talk, whenever we get introduced to these sort of stories that operate on a gender binary, it always raises the question to me about how how that works with people who don't identify as either male or female so strictly. It may just be simply going off of, the planet itself may be going off of biology. Like, yes. Biological sex appear. as a, as opposed to gender. It would just be like a chromosome thing or something. It just yeah. it just it just raises the like the thought process for me. The movie also mentions that these these human colonists they're technically the aliens here. Mm. Yes, the the Skaggle are the original inhabitants of this planet. Oh no, it's not the Skaggle. It, it's the same name as what's the, what's that? The Spackle. Yes, the Spackle. Spackle. Yep, yep, yep. It's uh, the the. Because I was like, oh, they're like plaster monsters or something. <laughs> the, 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 they're not a bunch of fucking Frank Oz Muppets. They, they don't live in Skaggle Rock. <laughs> Do you know what I was kind of waiting for that never arrived? And I don't know if this is in the books or not. If this, maybe it's, maybe I'm, I'm right. But if so, I don't know I'm right. So it's not really a spoiler. But when the, the, uh, the spackle turn up and you actually see them. They really do look like mutated humans. And I was kind of wondering if this was going to be like a Battlestar Galactica kind of situation <laughs> where at the end of the trilogy, it's revealed that this is actually Earth the whole time, that it suffered some sort of event. Everyone went off into space and they've just been out there so long that they've come back and they don't know that it's Earth. Because... It's surely convenient that they've got breathable air and everything looks like the woods on Earth. Animals it's are surely different. convenient. The animals are different, sure, but that can just happen over time. Mm. I mean, a naked Tom well, Holland look, wrestling with some kind of squid monster. Well, look, I don't think we're going to develop a second Oh, yeah, son. that's someone's fetish. Like, we're not going to develop another, like, star, but... Because there's two suns, which is interesting. It's also, the planet has this huge ring around it. Yeah. Which well, means that could be, like, the result of some sort of collision. Yeah. Is yeah. This, this ring of debris, like Saturn's ring. It's just, like, it's it's a very interesting movie. And yeah. I quite liked it. it it's just going to be one of, the, one of those ones that doesn't stick with me, you know? What, what's, that, what's that sparkly stuff around your head? Aurora Borealis. Aurora Borealis. At this time of year, in this part of the cos- cosmos, localized entirely around your head. Yes. Can you get rid of it? No. No. So what else did you watch this week? Well, I also saw another movie in cinemas by myself. I saw Boss Level. Uh, it's, a, it's a science fiction action movie directed by Joe Carnahan. It follows a uh, former military guy named Roy Pulver, played by Frank Grillo. He wakes up in a time loop, being pursued by assassins. And he realizes that there is a connection between this and his ex, Gemma Wells, played by Naomi Watts. She's a scientist on a shadowy government project run by Colonel Clive Venter, played by Mel Gibson. So Roy's got to figure out what is happening here. This movie spends way too much on exposition. It's a real dead first 20 minutes. So you start off in the time loop, but then it does this extended flashback into the day before. And it's just... It kills the pacing. Like should have just started with the day before. No, they shouldn't have had those scenes as they were. They're bad scenes. They're they're dead weight. They're leaden. It's a lot of. We didn't need the five to ten minutes of Frank Grillo and Naomi Watts 
talking in an office. It it's not well written enough. It's not dynamically staged enough. It's not acted well enough, frankly, to hold the the interest for that long. It 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 really is a problem at the start of this movie. The pacing. But it picks up so much once they've finished setting the table. Roy is just kind of more irritated by being stuck in this time loop than anything else. He's very annoyed by everything that's happening and he kind of is just exasperated in the way that he really quickly accelerates through all of the events that he knows are coming. He has no patience for it. No. And like, like by the start of the movie, he's been stuck in there for 120 cycles or something like that. Like, and, like, he wakes up with someone swinging a machete at his head. Like, that's the first thing he does every day is escape these assassins. Grillo is a, is a capable lead. There are some emotional beats for his character that are bungled, but that's a script problem, not a Grillo problem. Uh, I do think that, that the time loop antics are the funnest bits. Him, it really is, like, the name boss level is pretty apt. It is basically him repeating the same level of a video game, finding out the best path through it. Okay, this enemy's going to do this, so I'm going to do that to stop them. And then speed running. when I went that way, it didn't work, so I'm going to go this way this time. And it's about... It, it, it basically plays like... It, it, it plays like... Uh, I'm forgetting the genre. Choose your own adventure. No. Sort of like a roguelike. Roguelike, yes. Thank you, Sean. It's very roguelike in in the way that it, it approaches things. Basically, I mean, the boss level is he's going after Venter. He's going after Venter on the top floor of this skyscraper with all of these military people and security guards around him. You get some really fun over-the-top fight scenes and gore effects. Like, this is a big style of movie, like crazy things happen in it, people getting beheaded with katanas and uh, things like that. It also has a sudden, ambiguous ending that I liked, but my theatre did not like it all. They audibly did not like it. <laughs> that that was the note that it ended on. Yeah, it's fun. Um, I like time loop movies. It's a good one of those. Once you get past the really, unfortunately, leaden opening minutes. How's Gibson? He's good. He's always been good, you know. He's a good actor. He's just all of the stuff in real life about him that got caught up in all of that. He gets a few monologues here that are that are really... Nice, uh, nicely acted. He's got that sort of, like, gravelly... How close to his character from Machete Kills is he? Kind of similar, but, like, much much less manic. Oh, fair enough. I mean, the real thing here is, like, Naomi Watts, right? Two-time Academy Award nominee Naomi Watts, now playing second fiddle to Frank Grillo. (laughs) That's a career trajectory. One you don't necessarily want. It's this and Pilot's... (laughs) Pilots for TV shows that she, that don't get picked up. That's yeah. What happened to That's Naomi Watts? Justice for Naomi Watts. This is a movie for pay sort of situation. Yeah. Uh, at home, I watched Atlantis: The Lost Empire. Hmm. It is an animated family adventure film directed by Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise. It's set in 1914. There's a nerdy historian named Milo Thatch, played by Michael J. Fox, and he heads off on an expedition to find Atlantis. This leads underwater, through caverns. There are many fantasy-like obstacles here, science fiction-like obstacles. Uh, But once they get to Atlantis, it is not what they expect. I loved this as a kid. I saw it in cinemas when it came out. uh, And it still holds up really well as an adult. It's got a very Jules Verne sort of vibe. It does. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 
journey to the center of the earth, that kind of a thing. Yeah. The adventure stuff in the first act is the movie at its best. I mean, the the scene that everyone seems to remember from Atlantis is the Leviathan. Yes. Yeah. The the giant underwater creature that attacks the submarine. It is still the best sequence in the movie. I mean, that stuff is the best, as is they're exploring these underground caverns with ancient ruins and creatures that have not been seen in the world for millennia. Um, that stuff's all really fun, and I'm actually kind of disappointed once we get to Atlantis and the movie becomes something else, something that's a little less interesting to me. Becomes Dances with Dolphins. It has an unusually high body count as well yeah, for dolls. a children's animated film. Like, considering that they start out with a giant submarine that has, that could seems like a good house, what, a thousand, two thousand people, and well, by the end it of need about that much to operate. Yeah, and by the end of the movie, it's like seven or eight survivors. <laughs> like, <laughs> it it's a very high rate of attrition for a Disney animated film. Yeah, I get. I bet you one of the guys was like, "Okay, who threw red dye into the laundry? Hmm. Everyone's wearing red shirts now." It's it's. A fun group of characters here, too. Milo is very likable as a lead, and I like a lot of the supporting performances as well. Leonard Nimoy turns up in a role. Uh, Corey Burton, as this kind of a freak show of a human being called Mole, is very fun. Yeah, he's my favourite character. He's so weird. Just stop the dirt! Dirt from around the globe, spanning the centuries! What have you done? England must never murder his friends! What's it doing in my bed? You ask too many questions. Who are you? Who said you? Speak up! Me? I will know soon enough. As Jim Varney as the ship's cook, Florence Stanley plays this old woman who runs communications for the team and is totally past caring. She's epic too. I mean, it's just a fun group of people. And it's visually stunning as well. It's got all of these very angular designs to it, sort of metropolis almost. Yeah, yeah, now that you say it, it does, it, it is very much taking inspiration from art from that time and movies from that time. Mm. Like the whole Jules Verne thing, as you said, and yeah, I agree with you. The sequel kind of goes into that as well. And the look of Atlantis is very cool, as is the look of stuff like the Leviathan and the submarine. This is a very good-looking movie with very interesting designs. It's one of like it's one of two Disney movies that I need a live-action remake for that I actually think could really gain something from the live-action. Yeah. Is this and Treasure Planet? Who should play Milo? Tom Holland is right there. I mean, yeah, it's like. <laughs> Come on. It's so simple. He's perfect and, for it. You know what? Zendaya's right there as well. Like, yeah. That's cute. Hmm. What about the mole person? What about mole? Uh, Danny DeVito. No, no, no. It's simple. Josh Gad. Yes. That give makes him, no, a lot give of him sense. Shit. Give him those mulch digging shit again. Don't give me flashbacks to when he opened his jaw and shat out a bunch of dirt. I don't need that in my life. Get Danny DeVito. Yes. Get Danny DeVito, get him to... I'm the dirt man! ...crawl around and go, I'm a dirt man! I go around and I dirt! And I mean, that, like, um, the... The Packard character was made for Beth Grant. Yeah. It's available for streaming on Disney Plus, if anybody is interested in a 
at least in Australia. I assume everywhere else as well, considering it's a Disney yeah. movie. Next up, I watched Atlantis Milo's Return, directed by mm-hmm. Victor Cook, Toby Shelton, and Tad Stones. It's a direct-to-video sequel. All of the Not buddies... that Tad Stones, Harley. Not that Tad Stones. Tad the Lost Explorer. Okay. Sorry. I you just... know, that movie that we showed you half of and then we had to leave. Mm. Saved by the bell. Blessed relief. <laughs> We'll get around to that movie, listeners. We'll get around to it. That's all right. We don't really have to. I don't want to put you out again. <laughs> um, the buddies are all back now. They're here to recruit Milo once more, now played by James Arnold Taylor, because Michael J. Fox wasn't coming back for this. And the Atlantean queen, Kida, played by Cree Summers. Kida, that's right. And they go up to the surface and engage in a bunch of Scooby-Doo meets X-Files stories. This was originally three TV episodes. Uh, As these sequels tend to be. They were going to be making a television sequel for the Disney Channel called Team Atlantis. The movie didn't do as well as they wanted it to, but uh, so they cancelled that before it ever aired. But they took these first three episodes, which were already far in development, made a couple of adjustments to give it a beginning, middle, and end, and the vaguest of connecting tissue between them as they could, and put it out as a movie. And that badly hurts the narrative, because there is none. There is no narrative here. There are three standalone episodes of television linked in the loosest way. It's a very episodic structure. In the first episode, they go and investigate a kraken. Second episode, there's sand coyotes. Third episode, there's a mentally ill man who thinks he's Odin and has found Ragnarok, found a spear that he's going to bring Ragnarok about with. There's no connecting narrative structure between any of them. They're not even really connected by theme or by tone, almost. The pacing is just really damaging, and the plots are bad anyway. They're just dull. I, I, I see how they would work. For a nine-year-old or a ten-year-old who was like, yeah, I want to see more adventures from the characters in that Atlantis movie I really liked. But uh, as, an, as an adult approaching it, it doesn't stand up to what the first movie was. It doesn't have the same quality as the first film, just in, in the, the basic storytelling aspects of it. It is the worst one of these directed video Disney sequels I've seen since The Return of Jafar, the first Aladdin movie. And it's two of the same directors as well. It looks terrible as well. Um, you can you can clearly see that this was made on the cheap to be a morning TV show. Who knows what a TV show of this would have been, what it might have evolved into as it went along, but it's a bad movie. Uh, and it is available for streaming on Disney+. Plus. If we watched this. Been, we watched uh, this a lot as kids. I I like that um sort of like dog like lizard that likes heat. The salamander guy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I yeah, like that. Gotta like give him the cute animal sidekick. <laughs> and he is cute. I like how he curls up on the fire in the H.P. Lovecraft esque town that's being haunted by a kraken. That's uh, out of all of it. I like that part the most because it's basically a kid adaptation of the shadow over Innsmouth. yeah that is the best of three yeah absolutely the worst is the odin one yeah um i next watched evolution it's a science fiction comedy directed by ivan reitman the man who made ghostbusters 
A meteorite has crashed to Earth, carrying with it microscopic organisms that quickly evolve and multiply and and start to influence the wildlife and the terrain around the crash site. There's a community college professor named Ira Kane, played by David Duchovny, and his colleague Harry Block, played by Orlando Jones. They are investigating it because it lands pretty much in their backyard in their small town. But they are quickly steamrolled by the US military and shut out because Ira has an unfortunate... Uh, history with the US military, he once designed a vaccine for anthrax that caused horrific side effects, including, but not limited to, memory loss and violent diarrhea. But, David Duchovny is quick to point out, no one got anthrax. So they, the military doesn't want Ira around, so they bring in Dr. Alison Reed, played by Julianne Moore. But... Ira and Harry continue to insist on being involved and do their own investigation, and they quickly realise that things are getting out of hand. Organisms are spreading further than they think, and alien creatures are starting to invade the town, basically. This movie has no idea what its sense of humour is. Is it an adult movie, or is it a children's movie, a family film? There's too much blue banter for it to be a family film, and there's too many scatological jokes to be a movie made for people over the age of 12. The loose plot doesn't pick up the slack left behind. It It's vaguely amusing at times, and it's usually pretty agreeable. I mean, Reitman should be thanking God for the chemistry of his actors here. I mean, there's Duchovny and Jones who are all who are both very good. Sean William Scott comes in. He's basically playing every character that Sean William Scott has ever played. Their game, and it boosts the material far more than it deserves. I'm left to wonder how the hell they convinced, at this point, already two-time Oscar nominee Julianne Moore to do this script. Again, she likes making movies, Lawson. She likes making movies. Academy Award nominee... Julianne Moore playing second fiddle to David Duchovny. I don't know. She may, she might have liked the script. I don't see how that's possible, Sean. <laughs> this movie cost $80 million to make. It doesn't look like it, save for the finale, which gets larger in scope than the rest of the movie. And there's the one that is really the first time I realised that this movie actually had... Uh, was was intended to be a summer blockbuster once I saw that ending and looked at the release date. For the most part, it looks a lot like 90s television. It looks like people in a room on a soundstage acting with each other. Brightman is not the most visually interesting director. He never was. But some of the stuff here is just outright bad. The caverns that the meteorite has crashed into and landed in, the sets they go in that are also on a soundstage. I mean, they look like some of the stuff in, in the original 60s Star Trek or Doctor Who. That that kind of clearly fake rock wall, uh, like, it's not good. And, I mean, this is an $80 million movie directed by the director of Ghostbusters, one of the most successful comedies of all time, starring Julianne Moore, Starring David Duchovny, the star of one of the biggest shows on television at the time. It came out in the middle of the summer. It was meant to be a big investment for the studio. It was clearly looking at it supposed to be like the Men in Black of 2001. It's vanished without a trace on popular culture. Yeah. 
It's kind of remarkable. I guarantee that I have seen the cover art hmm. somewhere. I just have had no interest yeah. in watching the film. I haven't it's even a smiley face about. with three eyes. That's the one. Yeah, it's interesting because the company is coming in with, you know, his experience with X-Files. He's coming in with, like, sci-fi alien bona fides here. Yeah, and the company's not the problem. The, the problem is everything around the actors. Yeah, and Reitman, he's coming in with, as you said, Ghostbusters, which has a very interesting take on the supernatural. So it, it should work, it just doesn't. Yeah. Next up, I watched Lara Croft, Tomb Raider. It is a science fiction adventure film directed by Simon West. Follows Lara Croft. She's a Tomb Raider. She's played by Angelina Jolie. Her father, a British lord, played inexplicably by John Voight, who, yes, I know is Angelina Jolie's real-life father, but is, like, the furthest thing I can think of when you say the word British lord. He's missing, and he has sent a letter to be delivered years after his disappearance. There's this artifact that Angelina Jolie's got to track down. There's all these clues. The planets are aligning. Only happens once in a 5,000 years. If she gets all the pieces of this artifact, she'll be able to control time or something. And then she's got to race the Illuminati from getting there first. And the Illuminati is being led by this guy named Manfred Powell, played by Ian Glenn from Game of Thrones, Sejora. This movie's a total mess. It is a lowest common denominator rip-off of James Bond and Indiana Jones. The, the plot is barely there. There's so many holes here that you could drive a semi-truck through. Just unexplained questions. No one seems remotely surprised about the idea that they're talking about time control. They're talking about the ability to control time. No one reacts to that at all. So They just take it in stride. So nobody questions the fact that after gaining this artifact, they'll be able to manipulate one of the fundamental building blocks of our reality. No one is surprised by this. <laughs> and, I mean, okay, the Tomb Raider games have always gone into the supernatural. Okay. But the problem with this movie is it gives no indication whatsoever that Lara has encountered anything remotely supernatural before the beginning of this movie. And she is thoroughly unsurprised by the concept of time travel. It's unfortunate. And the character work is non-existent. Who are any of these people? What are their motivations? What are their allegiances? Who cares? Certainly not the movie. There are very lazy attempts at you know, father-daughter stuff that she is sort of haunted by the disappearance of her father that is apparently supposed to influence her desire to find this time travel artifact so she can travel through time and save her father. It would have been nice if that was actually in the movie any at all instead of just being thrown in in the third act. We are told that that is a motivating factor rather than actually seeing it in action, you know? It just has... And it's frequently just stupid and overblown. There are robots and Illuminati and there's magic statues and there's meteorites that cause time travel that the artifact is made of. And it's just like, ugh. It has an irritating attitude, too. It's obsessed with coolness, that kind of 2001, what an eight-year-old boy thinks is cool. There's all this techno music, attempts at cute humour. It irritated me at all portions of its <laughs> runtime. It's just dull. 
a lot of the time. And you've got a good cast here that is uncharacteristically bad. Daniel Craig turns up, playing an American, terribly. Noah Taylor is there, being very annoying. Ian Glenn comes off the best. Uh, he is sort of just doing a, a sinister, charming villain thing that he's Doesn't done before well. and will do again. Uh, and, and Jolie manages too, but she barely scrapes by. I mean, I read some reviews around the time they're talking about, oh, this is perfect casting. Wow, she's really exactly like the game character. And I'm like, you know what? Yes, she is. But that's more of an indicator of how shallow the character was in that era of the games than a particularly fantastic performance by Jolie. It has terrible effects as well. Like, it looks awful. That You can clearly see that this is digital, that this is CGI. It's better when they're doing practical stuff with wires jumping around the place and all of that stuff. It's available for streaming on Stan in Australia if anybody's interested. This, of course, meant I had to watch the sequel, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, directed by Ian DeBont, he of speed fame. Lara pursues a guy named Jonathan Reese, played by Kieran Hines. He develops bioweapons. He's after Pandora's box to develop a special bioweapon with Pandora's box. As you do. And she is helped in this pursuit by a shifty mercenary ex-boyfriend of hers named Terry Sheridan, played by Gerard Butler. This is generic, but it is much improved. The script is still bad, but at least it doesn't read like it was written by ten-year-olds. Uh, the characters get a little more time as well. None of it's good, but I'm appreciating it. I'm I'm grading it on a curve. The the Lara the Lara tar- Mm. The Lara-Terry thing doesn't really work. Lara's just too impenetrable a person. She's solid rock. There's no getting through that exterior of I'm a cool action heroine that uh, she's written as and Jolie plays her as. Terry's moral ambiguity that the movie bends over backwards to try and convince us is a thing isn't sold to us either. It, It doesn't really work. I actually think... Jolie's Lara might be a problem. She's an action hero. She's not a human being. She doesn't have any emotional response to anything. Uh, and that kind of creates a remove from the audience with her. Uh, I, I, I find it hard to invest with her as a character because nothing seems to affect her whatsoever. The plot is better. The Pandora's box idea is pretty cool. And they get a really good finale out of it where they, they bring in more of the supernatural elements from the Tomb Raider stuff, and it it plays a lot better here. They they have structured it a lot better. And the tone is much more palatable. It's still a little silly, but it's not irritatingly so. It is a passable Indiana Jones approximation. And grading on a curve from the first movie, it's much improved. Uh, it's available for streaming in Australia on Stan and Prime Video, if anybody is interested but that is me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you seen? Alright, so for this week we've been kind of like not watching all that much, but I'd like this opportunity to talk about a TV show that started up a couple of weeks back that we've been watching. It is called The Q. This is a game show where they bring in a couple of contestants and they have to complete certain either physically demanding or intellectually demanding games to win a particular amount of money. This is a... It's the sort of, like, modern take on a show that was from the UK, but this is the Australian version. It's hosted by comedian Andy Lee. 
basically, they have to complete all these different tasks. So, some of these games can range from really simple stuff like both contestants having to end up standing in the center of the room while blindfolded and and guess that they're standing in the right spot to having to memorize different patterns on the ground or or throw a ball into a quickly opening and closing box it's it's multifaceted a lot of these little games that they get them to play there's around 40 um different games that can appear at random um, that they have to fulfill. And they do it all from within a 4 meter by 4 meter Perspex cube. The staging of this is actually really, really cool. They do it in this ampith- this sort of like arena setting where the audience is surrounding on all sides with the cube in the middle. So it has that really cool in the round quality that I like from a lot of stuff. You can see everything that the person in the cube is doing. They get about because a lot of these games can be quite difficult, they get a lot of lives to work with. They also get lifelines. They can either choose to simplify a game or swap the contestant because some of the games um, are one contestant as opposed to two contestants at a time. It is actually really engaging um, when you get into the swing of things. The the most recent pair on were a, a young man and his grandmother they live together. She is very talented at games that require precision, like uh, darts and stuff like that, while he is more of a... he is quicker on the draw with a lot of things. And they were doing really well. I haven't watched this week's episode, but I really hope they win, because they did very, very well. The moment um, we started watching this show, I told Mom, oh, just keep in mind, if you lose all of your lives... We gas the audience hmm. uh, as a bit of like a... I've always liked the idea of like turning a game show into like a sick torture chamber sort of scenario. And then the cube seems to be like perfect for that sort of thing. It's it's quite the engaging show when you get into it. They have a kind of frenetic editing sort of quality to the show. I quite like it. It's, it's certainly one of the more interesting things that Channel 10 has done recently. Well, it's not like incredibly high barred hurdle no it isn't but i had a good time with it all things considered john what else did we watch this week i mean we watched the first we re-watched the first episode of american horror story apocalypse won't get into it too much because it's not really one of the seasons that i like it's very much a sequel series to a few of the others there are, it starts off very interesting with a nuclear apocalypse happening and the introduction of Michael Langdon, the Antichrist. But then it sort of devolves into being a sequel to ooh, American Horror Story Coven. And and, it's, and it starts to lose a lot of its own... It loses its own identity. Um, we, we mentioned American Horror Story before when we talked about um, the 1984 season and how we really, really dug that. Apocalypse just didn't have much going for it as its own thing. Yeah. Which, which was really disappointing because the concept of the apocalypse as one of those uh, uniquely American horror stories, um, judging yeah. by how much apocalypse media is created in the US, 
they just lose the plot and get too self-referential and, to be frank, self-absorbed over the course of the season. It's yeah, neat. they don't do enough with the idea of yeah. the apocalypse because it's this concept where in America there's a huge, absolutely huge amount of people who are doomsday preppers, right? So they pl- they're planning for this, and it varies among doomsday prepper to doomsday prepper, but they all think the end is coming and it's gonna be soon, so we've got to be prepared. They've got bunkers they've set up self-sufficient ways of getting clean water they've stockpiled gun after gun after potential explosive after gun and that is the direction you could have taken they could have taken this season show the way that when the chips are down these uh these civilized people they'll eat each other there was so many interesting ideas around like america's relationship with guns, America's relationship with, you know, the apocalypse, with all of that kind of thing. I'll admit it. I will eat my neighbors. I'm not letting my kids die. I'm just going to be honest. My superpowers being honest, I've extrapolated this out, and I won't have to for a few years since I got food and stuff, but I'm literally looking at my neighbors now and going, I'm ready to hang them up and gut them and skin them and chop them up. You know what? I'm ready. (laughs) There's a clip. That's that's another thing. All of these... Uh, right-wing pundits and some people in the left who are like who are blackpilled who have decided everything is shit the duma mentality exactly the whole duma mentality of shit will go down i will eat your ass which is another thing that uh alex jones has spewed out of his idiot mouth (laughs) like he he straight up said that's why i want the globalists to know I will eat your ass first. And a huge amount of people on the internet were like, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> but, yeah, there was so much potential to this season. So much it, potential. It just fell flat. It's possibly my second least favorite season after Roanoke. Yeah. Uh, uh, hopefully... Oh, it's my least favorite season. I liked Roanoke more. Hopefully we get... Uh, yeah, you're probably right. But hopefully the next season, which... As Macaulay Culkin in it, uh, yeah. which which is neat enough, um, is more of your 1984 or your Asylum type focus oh, and shit. quality, even as ho- opposed even to hotel like apocalypse, even hotel. But I'll take a freak show, even yeah. But hopefully this season, this next season has a strong ending because mm. th- this show has problems with its endings. Well, they've it's had a year longer than normal too. Yeah, hopefully they right. iron out a lot of those sort of problems. Because they had been, like, planning on going right in, just into production when, like, mm. the shutdown happened. So, I mean, you'd imagine that they would have had at least the first half of the season written at that point, and it's been a year yeah. since then, so. And they've also got the American Horror Stories thing, which are going to be hour-long, isolated stories yeah. just on their own, in, like, a pure anthology sense anthology series sense. Uh, i where... think that that's the future of the franchise yeah because, i think so too because i don't know how much longer these season long uh single concept things can go this is like we're coming up on our 10th and yeah well they've already renewed it for seasons 11 12 and 13 oh christ oh, there are ideas like we've spoken at length in our house of potential science fiction ideas spaceship yeah, yeah. like like, Go we've nuts. spoken so, about ideas. Do that, like, do that Roswell shit, 
you know? They seem to be prepping, like, with all of the the stuff that Ryan Murphy's been teasing for this new one, it seems to be some sort of castaway deserted island thing. That's what I'm hoping for. Like, mermaids and shit. Like, but horror mermaids, not sexy mermaids. Certainly the, the, uh... The outfit that Macaulay Culkin is wearing on that latest mm. set photo does not exactly seem contemporary. No. No. Like, Season- I... I, like, I much prefer seasonal anthologies to episodic anthologies. I much prefer them. Yeah, but you haven't been watching the show. That's true. So, you, I'm, so I'm sort of getting tired of it, It you sort know? of gets... It, it gets too self-referential. Yeah. I think we're... I don't know how I'm going to deal with three more, like, legit seasons. Four, oh, God! 10, 11, 12, 13. No, I mean the the three more after this this tenth one. Yeah. There have been great seasons, though. Cult, Asylum, Murder House. No, it's like, brace it's... yourself for another three-season renewal after that. It's still one of the highest-rated shows on FX. All I'm saying is it makes it's sense. pushing it. It makes... It, it is incredibly successful after it airs on streaming... I mean, it makes a lot of sense in to keep it on the air. Not only does it continue to get high linear ratings for Netflix for FX when it airs, but also as FX becomes a big part of the Hulu strategy, it makes sense to keep bringing in stuff that uh, gets high streaming ratings as well. And also, you know, I think it's a I think that seasonal anthology series are a great idea for streaming platforms because it's not like oh there's so much content and there's 10 seasons and i've got to catch up on all of them it's like oh no i heard 1984 was good so i'll watch 1984 like it's a standalone story you know so yeah brace yourself harley (laughs) you know you realize you don't have to watch them right no i know that it's just like they're stretching themselves a little thin you've done this many you'll see it through to the end well yeah Yeah. of course mama Mm. didn't raise no quitters i don't quit I may take a little while to jump back in, but I don't quit for good. Oh, The Witcher 3 says hello. I'm on a break! (laughs) We're on a break! Sure, a year and a half long break. (laughs) He's on a break and they're seeing other people. I'm seeing other games. I'll go back to The Witcher. But yeah, that's what we've seen. That's the Finnish Origins first. Yeah. And and Spider-Man PS4. Yeah, and AC Odyssey. I will get back. Mass Effect trilogy—it's all biding time for that Mass Effect trilogy remaster. We'll we'll see. God, I swear we'll to see. God, I swear to God, we're gonna wake up one day. We're gonna be tied up in a basement somewhere. You're gonna have our eyes taped open like the friggin' Clockwork Orange, and like, you're gonna force us play my to ga- play Mass Effect. Play Mass Effect and see my alien girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, that's what we've seen within the week. Now we're going to play for you the trailer to The Fast and the Furious. One race, 2G buy it, winner takes all. I don't have any cash, but I do have the peak slip to my car. You brave, you brave. You're in. Do it fast, do it furious. On the street, where reputations are made. It don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. In a world beyond the law. We drive like we've done this before. We've done ever. If you have what it takes. You want a beer? Yo, Dom, why'd you bring that fool here? 
because he kept me out of handcuffs. You can have it all. My brother likes you. Usually he doesn't like anybody. But when rivalries are a way of life... I thought we had an agreement. You stay away, I stay away. When loyalty is all that matters... You don't know this punk, Dom. Watch your back. You break her heart, I'll break your neck. Would you be willing... Yeah, stick by me? Maybe. ...to risk everything? That was the trailer for The Fast and the Furious. It's an action crime movie directed by Rob Cohen, and it's loosely inspired by the non-fiction Vibe magazine article Racer X by Ken Lee. It follows undercover police officer Brian O'Connor, played by Paul Walker, who infiltrates the illegal street racing scene in Los Angeles to uncover the culprits behind a series of daring highway raids on moving trucks. The bandits have been laying siege to shipping vehicles and making off with their contents, primarily that most valuable of valuables, that plastic gold, DVD players. The truckers are getting antsy, and it's only a matter of time before they begin to arm themselves and fight back and the police are keen to shut this whole thing down before warring truckers and gearheads start shooting each other in the street. To that end, Brian poses as a petty criminal with a racing obsession and focuses in on Dominic Toretto, played by Vin Diesel, and his family and friends. Dom's basically the king of the streets, a magnetic force who dominates the street races and minor criminal enterprises of urban LA. Brian himself is drawn into Dom's charismatic orbit, and despite mounting evidence, insists his new friend is not responsible for the heists he is investigating. Slipping deeper and deeper into his own cover, Brian is forced to make a choice between his duty as a police officer and his newfound kinship with Toretto and his crew, particularly his fledgling romance with Dom's sister, Mia, played by Jordana Brewster. So, before we get too far into this, why don't we each go around and say what our initial thoughts were. I will time this for 30 seconds. Why don't you start us off, Sean? What were your thoughts on Fast and Furious? Ready, set, go. It's all right. That all you need? It's all right. There are good stunts. Vin Diesel gets a bit to do. You ready, Harley? I don't really have much yeah, yeah, to say about it. Three, two, one, go. I've never really been into the Fast and the Furious franchise. This is the first one of them I have actually watched. So I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. But frankly, this is the first one before it gets, I assume insane. So I kind of liked how grounded this was. This is a crime semi-action drama film at its heart. It's more in line with something like Speed. Alright, you got me queued up, Sean? Yep. Three, two, one, go! I'm not really a car person. I was never particularly interested in this franchise until it made the switch to vaudeville, but... I, I agree with you, Harley, that I like it more than I expected to before I saw it the first time. It It is a very competent, 
crime drama that runs on the strength and the charisma of its actors. The direction that the franchise went in is more my interest. <laughs> yeah. So obviously this is the first part in our two-part sociological experiment on you guys, that you will be jumping from this to Furious 7 next week. So knowing that, knowing that context, what exactly were you expecting coming into this first film? Uh, coming into this first film, I expected... I expected it to be more grounded, but I still expected it to be like, you know, the early 2000s... An action film. ...type of movie. An action film. I expected an action film. Now, the movie certainly does have action set pieces, but it's more interested in the racing and in those quiet moments between characters. It's surprisingly dedicated to that. Hmm. It's certainly a far cry from the trailers I've seen for stuff like Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw, (laughs) or stuff like submarines in the Arctic and spies shit. So I, I was honestly really, really surprised. As someone who knows very little about the franchise out of half remembered trailers over the past couple of decades, I, I don't know, I expected something else. It's, it is interesting because the DNA is there. Like, with the whole heist thing, you can see the first baby steps out of the ocean towards what this fish creature would eventually turn into, right? You, you can see the germ, which will grow into the flower. It, and it's, it is interesting to see how it has re- it really has changed and how the character dynamic has changed between people. Simply from cultural as osmosis, I know that Brian becomes family yeah. to the characters <laughs> and all of that. And family becomes a very big, you know, theme of the movies because the actors have really, truly become family to each other. And it is interesting to see a situation where these two characters who would be very, very memed in terms of their relationship start off not trusting each other. Were you aware that Brian began as an undercover cop? Uh, Vaguely. When I read the the logline thing on Stan, where it inexplicably mentions a heroin drug ring... That appears to be half the the logline from the first movie and half the logline from the second movie where Brian infiltrates a heroin gang, yeah. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, oh, so he's an undercover cop, which... Can we just talk about, like, the ethically questionable things behind him being an undercover cop in this scenario? You're talking about Mia. Yeah, that's fucked up. Yeah. That, That is very fucked up and him saying oh or everything i said to you was real it's like this is a very big thing that you're dropping in her lap right now that you've been a cop this whole time like this is a severe severe breach of trust and i do not understand how dom can be like yeah i know you saved my life but still you betrayed us as like a group vince was right He's a prick, but he was right. <laughs> Ethically, they do not portray the LAPD in the best light in the movie, for sure. And it leads to this idea that there are no heroes here. Everyone is sort of morally grey. Yeah. And I find that to be kind of interesting. 
this is a this is a concept that is much more heavily explored in the fourth film, which is the first right. one that got all of the cast back together. There's this basically a line in the movie where Mia asks Brian, "Are you sure you're the good guy pretending to be the bad guy, or are you the bad guy pretending to be the good guy?" Mm. So this is something certainly that the franchise grappled with as it went forward. Uh, yeah. I I do think. That this is also a byproduct of it being twenty years old. This movie, yeah. That the yeah. the the propriety of Brian's relationship with Mia, the pretending to be someone and something that he's not, while he is forming a emotional and sexual relationship with her, that that is something that was less considered in two thousand and one than it is in twenty twenty one. Yeah, and I mean it. It has happened multiple times. Some people have had children and been married for 20 years and then been like oh i'm an undercover fed yeah the series does deal with that as gracefully perhaps as you might ever be allowed (laughs) to expect a fast and furious movie to deal with by the time they get to the fifth movie they don't want you to be thinking about that anymore we've moved on we we dealt with that in fast and furious the fourth movie everyone's happy now (laughs) so we've got bigger fish to fry like Super villains yeah. and cyber trucks. But I mean, this is all going back to the the pretty core character arcs of the film, which is something that we've seen before in a lot of things. The cop, undercover cop that gets in too deep. Yeah. Yeah. That starts to sympathize and to root for the subject of his investigation and the people that he's surrounding himself with and kind of is forced into a moral quandary on what the best path forward is. Yeah, it's very point break. Mm. Look, uh, and I'm not I'm not going to bat for Toretto as being this knight in shining armor. He's bad guy as well. It's complex. That's that's something else they want you to forget as the series goes on. That's that's the thing. Each of these characters they're all complex. Other than Michelle Rodriguez's character. Yeah, but they're not all one thing, you know? Like like we said, Dom is a criminal. He's actually doing all these drug heists. Yeah. But he has that amazing monologue where he talks to Brian about him assaulting that guy and beating him half to death, where he mentions that his father was a racer, a legitimate racer. Like he was a stock car racer. Yeah, and the guy beat up was the guy who, in one of the races, winged his father's car and led to his father's death. Which, we we never get any uh, impression that it was on purpose, either. No, no but it's like, he, he has serious anger and trust issues because of that, and this kind of, like, weird death wish, hmm. in a sense. He, he talks about his father's car. Know what she ran in Palmdale? No, what did she run? Nine seconds flat. My dad was driving it. So much torque, the chassis twisted coming off the line. I barely kept it on the track. So what's your best time? I've never driven her. Why not? Scares the shit out of me. He's scared of it, yeah. And and by the end, he gets into that car, and he's being chased down by Brian. And it feels like he wants this to be the end. Yeah. In a sense. And it's like, it's really distressing and really ultimately successfully dramatic in that sense. I, I get a sense that Dom is this kind of like, 
yes, he is very focused on his family. Yes, he enjoys part of his life, but he's only living for those 10 seconds Mm. when he is racing. And everything else is just to get there. Yeah, and he says that. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Nothing else matters, not the mortgage, not the store, not my team and all their bullshit. For those 10 seconds or less, I'm free. I'm kind of grappling myself with how far I should go into the directions that these characters go in the future. I think maybe this is... A, compar- a comparison to be um, to be made in the next episode, not in the current one. But there is a lot about the characterizations of these characters that is worked through as quickly as they possibly can as the series goes on to to make the series into what it is today. What you're describing about Dom in the first one is m- mostly pretty unique to the first one. It's not yeah. really something that they address again. Yeah, and he's got, like, a hair-trigger temper, too. Like, when he beats Tran. Yeah. He beats him up for no good reason at all? Well, I think there's a good reason, considering the the culture that he's a part of. He's just been accused of being a snitch. I mean, mean, he needs to push back against that immediately. Yeah, but, like, beating a man half to death? Well, he's not half to death. He's fine at the end, isn't he? he gets he's at least away. a quarter to death. But still, he goes too far, and you could see how he could He could take a chunk him. out of his health bar, let's say. This is it, and again, this is a very different Dom to the one that we will see in future movies. Dom is actually a pretty restrained person in the later films. But yes, you're right, it is absolutely here. Certainly, I think probably the best acting that Vin Diesel does in the movie is when he realises that Brian's a cop, and you can yeah. you can see in felt really crushing. Yeah, he looks me. at him like he's about to explode. Yeah, but you can see him like just managing to restrain himself because that's yeah, not to, what the situation needs at the moment. Because Vince, yeah. his arm is just cut up. Mm. Can we talk about Vince? Sure. I think he's such an interesting character in this because he is very much the person who Brian is trying to be, in a sense. Like, he's trying to be, a, like, him, but less aggressive. I would say that's the other way around, that Vince wants to be the person that Brian is mm. pretending to be. But anyway, like, Vince has... He has anger issues, and he has trust issues. And he's right! No one likes the tuna from here. Is the tuna from there really that bad that you cannot... In good conscience, say that anyone would like it. But the thing is, he's right not to trust Brian. Oh yeah, he is. Brian's yeah. a liar, and and that like I want to know what his response was in the hospital <laughs> when he found out he was right. <laughs> Probably fist pumping the air with this one good arm, being like, "I fucking knew it. I was vindicated." Yes. Vindicated. Another interesting character was vindicated. <laughs> the team's, like, tech guy, in a sense? Jesse. The guy- Jesse, yeah. Again, we get a grounded explanation for his character. He- he has ADD, and he couldn't focus on anything but maths. And motors. Those sort of things yeah. in school, so he ended up having to drop out, and that's the only thing that sort of, like, quiets the noise around him. Yeah. Is working on the cars. 
And he tries to act tougher than he is, like when he gets into that race with Tran. And it's really tragic how it ends up with him. Hmm. He will never, ever be mentioned in the series ever again. Not even (laughs) in passing. His name will never be uttered. His actions will never be referenced. He's gone. (laughs) His His life will never be remembered. Him getting gunned down is what, like, spurs Dom's, like, final actions in this film. Mm. Mm. One thing I do have to say is, I like the racing and all this. Yes. Mm. It's really good stuff. I said at the start of the deep dive that I am not really a car person. I am, as I've said before on this podcast, in the words of Superintendent Chalmers... You know, I used to think a car was just a way of getting from point A to point B, and on weekends, point C. The race stuff is all really good. It's all really intense. It has a few moments of that early 2000s stylistic overdrive where it zooms down the gear shift into the engine of a car and we see the NOS fire, all of that stuff. But for the most part, and, and obviously the, the, the warping effect that they do outside the windows and things, this is not an aesthetic that the series will continue with. So what's happening here? Is he going to overdrive? Is he travelling through time? For the most part, it's just, it's good, effective, tense race stuff. And it, I mean, it, the, the shots that they have are good. The, the, just the speed that is being achieved, the sense of speed is a really effective one. And this movie has a lot of, practical effects in it there's very few non-practical effects the car exploding with the nos coming out the front with the different color flame that was a particularly nice touch and and this is something that the series will continue that even though they're doing crazy stuff now it is still for the most part the cars themselves are practical they might be doing all of these crazy things that have all of these digital effects surrounding them. They might be chasing a plane down a runway and, you know, trying to use harpoons to tow it to the ground. But what they're doing is actually they're on a runway with the back of a plane built on the back of a truck and they're actually driving the cars along. And yes, there's digital enhancement. Yes, the stunts get increasingly crazy and those are digital. But when the cars wreck, those cars are wrecking to the point where you get to Fast Furious 7 and they totaled 230 cars in the making of that movie. (laughs) Fully two-thirds of the cars that they used were destroyed in the production of that film. It is still pretty practical, and so are the fights as well, the, the fist fights, the gun fights. They still do try and keep it as visceral as possible because the one time that they didn't was the fourth movie, and everyone hated it because it looked terrible. I've never been a big car person, but when I did start driving, I started getting more of an appreciation for cars, as you naturally would. And I have to say, the, the stunts, one in particular, the driving under the truck yeah that was cool. that one is a fantastic and super dangerous stunt yeah so i gotta really credit the stunt drivers on this it's, Absolutely. it's incredible work and a lot of that stuff at the end there is real and it's the stunt people as well it's um it's them on the, it's, it's actually a person strapped to the side of a speeding truck like yeah yeah it won a whole bunch of taurus awards which are the 
the stunt awards, basically, that the, the, the stunt person community, their award show is the Taurus Awards, where they were nominated for a whole bunch of them and won a whole bunch of them as well. Best Driving, the winner. Best Work with a Vehicle winner. Best Stunt by a Stunt Woman winner. Best Stunt by a Stunt Man winner. Best Stunt Coordinator winner. Best Work with a Vehicle nominee. Hardest Hit nominee. So they were two of the nominees for Best Work with a Vehicle. But, okay, so Best Driving. Truck hijacking. Daytime. Black sports car drives in front of and then swerves under the semi-truck at high speed. Comes out the other side, is bumped by the semi, hits a pipe ramp, and lands in the desert. So they describe how they did the stunts in these little things. Best work with a vehicle. Stunt performer transfers from sports car to the side of a semi-truck to save second stuntman who is tied to the truck. Jumper unties second performer, and they both jump back into the still-moving sports car. This is all practical. Yeah. Truck hijacking daytime. Best stunt by stunt woman. Black sports car drives in front of and then swerves under... The semi-truck at high speed. Well, there you go. It's the same stunt as, as Best Driving. It was performed by a woman. Uh, best Stunt by a Stunt Man. Black Street Rod pipe ramps over the front end of a semi and does a 360 degree in midair as an orange street rod drives underneath. That's the crash at the end. Yep. That one, like, that one blew my mind because I'm like, holy yeah. shit. There's a person in that car. You gotta get that right. You gotta. Because you're risking a few lives there. You're not just risking lives, you also gotta get that take. Mm. Nominated again for best work with a vehicle, motorcycle chase between two cars and two motorcycles. Segment is where the motorcycle is pushed off of the cliff by one of the cars. Stuntman falls over motorcycle handlebars and is thrown over cliff. That's practical. Mm. Hardest hit, Stuntman nominee. Stuntman climbs from car to the grill of the semi and then swings from the front of the semi around to the side of the semi. So yeah, this... I mean, for as big as these movies have gotten, they have still tried to keep that energy. And it was then, and still is, a lot of the actors in the cars when they can manage it. Vin Diesel and Paul Walker are behind the wheel of these cars as often as they can manage it. Yeah, yeah. Paul Walker actually was famously really into cars Mm. and was, in fact, a really, really good driver. He raced in his spare time. He owned a lot of the cars that are actually, like, he didn't own the actual cars because, you know, hundreds of them were getting destroyed, but he owned versions of those cars himself. He had a massive collection of cars. There are special features on pretty much all of the movies that show the, the stunt driving training that the cast is receiving, that they're going out to you know, airfields and things and and racetracks and they're driving around and they're having the tyres swapped out every 20 minutes because that's how quickly they're burning out the tread on them. It's There is a level of of commitment by all of the actors in the stunts in this film, but also especially moving forward, that I think Mm. gives the franchise some of its... a lot of its viability, frankly. Yeah. It is sort of like instead of having one Tom Cruise in a Mission Impossible, you have a lot of Tom Cruises in a Mission Impossible. <laughs> exactly. But not as good at acting. True. With the big race they have in the desert, do we really want to be calling it Race Wars? That The, only, the first time that clicked in my head for me was when you said that. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm had like, not This is LA, that. buds. Yeah. Let's... yeah uh, sitting there watching, I was thinking, Jesus, is... Like, was Charles Manson doing PR for these people? I mean, what is up? Race Wars? Give me a break. In LA as well? 
in the sticks in LA? Do we really want to go there? I like how the first heist is, yes, it's for products that would get a lot of money, but it's not a nuclear bomb, it's not a bioweapon, yeah. it's a whole bunch of Samsungs. It's actually kind of goofy, 20 years later, the idea yeah. of this high-stakes heist to steal DVD players. And TVs, there are CRT TVs. And it's like, my god, <laughs> this is just, like, how low stakes it seems to be, like, the biggest thing that is actually threatened by this is, yes, Dom's team's lives, and also the livelihoods of the truckers. I don't know, like, I I think the truckers are pretty, um, well, then again, American employment law, who knows, but I would imagine that in most countries that that the truckers would actually be being instructed by their employers to it's like when you're when you're a cashier at a service station, you're instructed to comply with the robber, you know? Oh, yeah. truckers are not told to comply. They are told to defend their haul mm. as as strictly as humanly possible. Yeah. That doesn't seem like they are paid enough to no. justify asking them to risk life and limb. There are these special types of torches that have been designed for security guards and truckers that are shaped like clubs and truncheons and that's why you find that a lot of truckers like at the start of this movie have like big sticks in their cabs so they can fend off anyone who's trying to rob them like can we agree that a movie a movie about these truckers would be fascinating like like what happens i do i do love that at the end with the big heist that the trucker even even after they start trying to retreat he just like it becomes the the villain from that steven spielberg movie duel like he's just he's got the bloodlust now and he's gonna keep coming after them like even after they're off the truck he still rams them (laughs) yeah but think about it from this guy's perspective he's been hearing about how all of his mates who he works with have been terrorized by this group oh, sure. of but like, it just it just amuses me how he's like so dead set on taking a human life today like <laughs> it's gonna happen he was ready you don't carry a shotgun for no reason yeah but i just want to see a like fast and the Fuse presents film about these truckers and, like, the last act is all from the trucker's perspective <laughs> of the final heist. And he's, like, he's panicking because these strange people have crawled onto his truck. Like, there's a very, very loud, visually and auditory, like, car that's, right that's beside That's the villain it. of the, the Last and the Furious. That's, that trucker comes back oh, and he's out that's for revenge. The sign of that trucker. <laughs> Oh, yeah. He's just, like, souped up this, like, amazingly tough truck. It's got, like... But not only that, it's like, he's, he's like, the Blofeld inspector. He's like, I'm the author of all your pain. (laughs) (laughs) He's been secretly running all of the bad guys the whole time. Yes! He's, like, tied Dom to a chair and is talking about how, like, Charlize Theron's character is his daughter. Like, all of this bullshit. And it's Christoph Waltz. You you definitely get Christoph Waltz. I like the idea that it's the guy's just like, so, Dom, where are my Samsungs? (laughs) Where are my Panasonics, Dom? I do love the idea I gotta get these CRTs to their destination, Toretto! I love the idea that it's like Werner Herzog, and he says, the Panasonics (laughs) represent trust and loyalty 
and this is what you have taken from me. So I will take your family as represented by the barbecues that you do. <laughs> yes, get Werner Herzog as the villain for the Lost and the Furious. The enormity of your stupidity is overwhelming. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the cast. Because okay. I actually think for as, as relatively rote as the narrative is, we've seen it all before. For oh. as as relatively workmanlike as the script is, and indeed for as technique-free as a lot of the performances are, <laughs> there's a real charm here. There's a real yeah, absolutely. charisma and chemistry between these actors. They have struck gold in the casting of these particular people opposite these particular people. I mean, mm. sure. I mean, Stanislavski's not going to put his coat and hat on and leave, like, saying, my work here is done. Yeah. Like, he's, like this isn't Oscar-worthy, but there are good charismatic yeah. performances. And this is something that the series has always been very good at, that they exactly. will pull in as as the years go on ludicrous and Tyrese Gibson and Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham but they will bring in these people who are also I mean I mean in 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 some ways the Fast and Furious is this generation's Stallone and Schwarzenegger franchise of of the 80s right sure it's not it, it's a lot of very muscly people with limited acting ability Dominating the screen through their enthusiasm and their charisma yeah. and chemistry. Yeah. Vin Diesel not gonna win any Oscars. Paul Walker, may he rest in peace, not the most technically adept of actors. But they are all exactly what the movie requires them to be. There is a kind yeah, of yeah. magnetism and charisma to them that makes them perfect for the movie stars. The parts. Yes. The movie stars. They're not going to they're not going to be cast in the next Wes Anderson feature. They're not going to be Robert Eggers' first choice for a story about two lonely people on a, like a train in Siberia. Like it's and they will bring in more talented actors as the years go by. They will Doesn't bring in Helen Mirren. Come in. Helen Mirren plays Jason Statham's criminal mother. <laughs> That's awesome. Doing I mean, a Cockney really? accent like Jason Statham. I mean, you oh, tell me that Werner Herzog won't sign on to this so he can go fund his story about, like, serial killers living in Africa or some shit. But yeah, they'll bring in <laughs> Helen Mirren and Kurt Russell and Charlize Theron, and when they do, it's almost unfair. It's almost, it's almost <laughs> like sending in a kindergartner to fight Mike Tyson. Like, it's... The, the limitations for the main cast are laid bare in those moments, but always, always, always... There is that spark, that chemistry between them that makes it work. I find that in this movie, this is my favourite Vin Diesel performance, because particularly the performances in this film, there's an honesty to it. There's There's a grounded reality that these actors have latched onto. And he's stretching himself. Here, in he a way is. that we haven't really seen elsewhere. And won't see again. Yeah, really. like, that's, that is, I I like Dom, I like Vin Diesel in these movies, but yes, as the franchise goes on, Dom evolves into a much more traditional Vin Diesel action hero. Yeah. Uh, he, he doesn't exhibit the same kind of vulnerability and grey morality that he does in this first movie yeah, again. The, the performance in this movie 
and some of the more quiet moments, oddly enough, made me flash back to Bloodshot <laughs> out of all movies. Like My favorite movie. Movie so great you had to read the book. <laughs> fuck off. But like the sort of like subtler moments of quiet where like the confusion is on his face and you can see him like you see the gears turning and Vin Diesel's good when he needs to do that. I mean, he's not Jude Law, but he doesn't have to be. And he, he's got a lot of chemistry with Paul Walker. He absolutely does. They were very, very good friends in real life. Of course, and you can you can tell even going forward that the crew on this these movies became really close. Michelle Rodriguez became very close to both of them. Like, Vin Diesel nerd king that he is, like, became very close to everyone. They all were. Issues and with the rocker side. Yeah, they all they all were. And and that's why I think probably that, as I will get into next week, that the continuity porn of this movie is so great that you will have some of these very famous actors who have gone on to become extremely uh, in demand in the interim. You will, you will see next week when you do Furious 7, you will see a very famous, recognisable actor turn up for a single scene with no dialogue whatsoever. Because, apparently, these movies are really fun to make and they like the people. And it's very... It, it's Vin Diesel is now a producer on these movies and when he calls these people back, they keep coming. Helen Mirren is a big fan of the franchise. She wanted to be in the eighth movie as a cameo. And now that she's in the eighth movie, they keep calling her back in. She's she's in that Hobbs and Shaw movie in a much more extended way. I'm I'm pretty she's in sure. The ninth movie, I think. I think so, which is I odd because I don't Cena think is in F nine, which is like that. I I didn't know that that was kind of missing, but it makes yeah. perfect sense. He would be there. Like it's a surprise he wasn't before. Is this. is is Batista is Batista in? Not yet, as of yet, but that seems like a good fit. Yeah. Helen Mirren is in the ninth one. They're now bringing her back, independent of Jason Statham. Um, so yeah, just no. when you when you actually like sit down and you at, you tally up the list of cast members over the course of this, and how often actually that they turn up again, you will see most of the characters, ninety nine percent of the characters that are still living at the end of this first movie, turn up again in some capacity in the future films. Mm. Up to and including the the FBI guy who Brian doesn't get along with. What? I'll talk about it next week. The, chi- <laughs> the, the chief guy who's like, I can blame whoever I want. Yep. Give me pictures of Spider-Man. Oh, oh God. Yep. <laughs> so, cool. the, the continuity of this series has become weirdly intricate as time has gone on. I do love the fact that the people who... Brian is working for are, are like, look, man, you're getting in too deep. You're getting in too deep. And then after a little bit, when he figures out, oh yeah, Dom is doing this stuff, he finally has that moment of, fuck, I'm in too deep. Hmm. Like everyone was telling him. And and we talked a little bit about I'm in the Brian Mia relationship, but even putting aside the the contextual problems of him being an undercover cop. When I see Paul Walker and Jordana Brewster on screen together, I'm like, yeah, I like yeah. these people. They work There's well chemistry. together. It works. I'm rooting. I'm rooting for them, even though yeah. I, in the back of my head, I've got that thing going on. It's a. I am happy 
that that relationship picks up again in a, in a more genuine and truthful way later on in the movies because yeah. I like seeing these people together. Mm. It works well. And also shout out to Jordana Brewster who, between her and Ted Levine, are, I think, the people giving genuinely good performances in this film. She was in, she just finished her first year in Yale. She was, she was moonlighting in a Fast and Furious movie between years at an Ivy League college. <laughs> she did a good job. Mm. Like everything really well. that she plays is very truthful. Like when she finds out the look of betrayal on her face, it's fantastic. The look of worry on her face when Dom drives off, whenever he drives off in this movie is legit. Let's talk about the ending. I mean, it is kind of a little sudden, sudden, isn't it, that Brian's Oh, yeah, just it like, just stops. Oh, what's that? It's It's been an hour and a half. I'm a cop. <laughs> like, it really is that sudden. It's like he, he looked at the time, he saw how much time was left in the runtime, and he was like, all right, let's start wrapping this up, people. We have to speed run the next 15 minutes in five minutes. Let's go. I like the sequences on the bikes. Oh, the guy gets wiped out by Toretto and the bike lands on him. Hmm. I'm like, if that guy doesn't have internal bleeding, he's definitely going to have a shitload of bruises. The the train thing is particularly effective Hmm. for me because I was just sitting there going, I know both of them are in the next rest of the franchise. Paul Walker, unfortunately, passed away. There is kind of a unfortunate metatextual shadow hanging over yeah. the crashes that Paul Walker gets into in this franchise, is isn't there? That is true. Mm. It's like, And I tried as hard as I could to keep it out of my mind, but whenever he was driving a couldn't. car, I was just like, God, what a shame. Yeah. You know? Obviously awful awful for his family and his friends my heart goes out to them even after all this time because he was very loved yes when when we go we can this is probably maybe a conversation for next week that is the film that he died during the production of it was completed with digital effects and with his brothers as stand-ins so certainly that is a conversation we'll be having next week it just yeah it it does cast a little bit of a pall yeah over some of his car stunts, knowing that... And and a lot of the near misses. Mm. But this movie just... It ends with Brian giving Dom the keys to his car, bringing back the line, I owe you a 10-second car, and it ends. Yeah. It simply ends. I would have liked to see some of the fallout. Well, there was originally an, another scene after that that mm. they cut... And I'm glad that they did, because it would have caused them problems with the directions that they went in the sequel. But it was originally going to be another scene of Brian having resigned from the police force, going to the Toretto house again, which is up for sale. Mia is packing things up in the garage. He goes in and apologizes to her and asks for another chance. And she says, it's not going to be that easy. And he says... I've got time, and that was the end. The direction that they went with the immediate sequel to this, that wouldn't have worked. And I, I actually, I do like the kind of sudden ending. It's not a very Hollywood ending for no. for the beginning of a Hollywood franchise. It, it's kind of dark. Vince mm. is in hospital. The, the other, the kid is dead. Brian has, you know, shattered his relationship with Mia. 
he shattered his relationship with Dom as yeah, well. Yeah, with, with all of them. And and he's compromised as a officer. Yes. When we pick up in the second film, he is on the run. He is a wanted fugitive for aiding and abetting Dom at the end of this. Yeah. So it's it's not a it's not a happy ending, is it? Like Dom drives off into an uncertain future, and Brian has is left with to fend for himself, just having detonated both his career and his personal life. Yeah. Like it's mm. it's a strangely somber way to conclude a movie, a big Hollywood mm. movie, and the, yeah. this was a big Hollywood movie to everyone's surprise, including Universal. It. Originally had, I think, a... It was was either earlier or it was a later release date. It wasn't supposed to come out in summer. But it got really good test scores when they showed it to preview audiences. And so they moved it to the summer and it did really well. This initial film only cost $38 which considering the extraordinary... Like, that's the catering budget on... Hobson Shaw, <laughs> like yeah. the directions that it went, that's that's chump change. But the Rock eats more than that mm. in a day just to keep up oh, yeah. the muscle mass. Oh yeah, they need they need more of that in red meat. They they spend yeah. thirty eight million dollars in red meat to keep the 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 Rock's muscle mass up. Yeah, so it really is an unlikely origin, isn't it? For yeah, yeah, such an influential film franchise. And I would, I would, a surprisingly somber start. And, and if you actually look at 2001, I would argue that in terms of the franchises that 2001 spawned, it is perhaps the most influential year of the 21st century so far. Yeah. We have Fast and Furious, Harry Potter, and Lord of the Rings all in 2001. And that's before you get into perhaps some smaller stuff like Shrek, who, which is, again really influential but not necessarily on the same level even the sense that you were like and even something smaller like shrek well it's a it had four installments and it's been dormant for almost 10 years so yeah but i know but like these franchises that we're talking about fast and the furious included are massive oh yeah they're they've all they all have Shrek excluded, all have installments that have grossed over a billion dollars. They all have incredible ensemble casts of movie stars. They have permeated the pop culture in a way that is, I mean, on the level of Star Wars. All of them have had bad tie-in games, and only three of them have had actually good games. Fast and the Furious has never had a good game. (laughs) It had that tie-in with Forza Horizon 2. That doesn't count. It's a it's a game. It's a separate game. It's a separate application. That's true. I guess. It is technically a prequel. Well, it takes place concurrently with Fast and Furious 7. You're doing busy work for Ludacris in that game. <laughs> <laughs> like picking well, up his like... dry cleaning? No, you're collecting cars for him to drop out of an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need the context for that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was... Yeah, it came out before the movie, and I'm pretty sure that it ended with, like, that scene of Ludacris pulling off that stunt that he needed all of the cars for as a a promotional tool. So, yeah. I feel like we're reaching the end here. Are you excited to see the direction that the franchise goes in? I'm fascinated, dude. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated. This movie was so sort of serious and somber... 
I am I'm ready for the whiplash, <laughs> to be completely honest. So before we get to that, why don't we each go around and say who our MVP was for this movie and what our favourite scene or sequence was. There is no relevant IMDb information. I will start us off and I will say that my MVP is Vin Diesel. He is giving a really good performance here. A genuinely good performance of the type that he rarely has been allowed to deliver. So often he plays Riddick or he plays... Dominic Toretto from the last the last couple of Fast and Furious movies, he plays a very traditional tough guy action hero, and he doesn't often get to explore some of the deeper things. I think that he his involvement in this film is really important for the franchise. I think yeah. Vin Diesel is so necessary for the franchise. We will get into next week the two times that they tried to do the franchise without Vin Diesel and how it almost killed the series. Mm. But he he gives Dom that magnetism that he needs. We understand why Brian is drawn to him, and we also continue to understand, as the franchise goes on, how he acts as kind of a star, that all of these different people start to orbit. Yeah, he's as important to the franchise as, as Tom Cruise is to Mission Impossible. I would argue more so. I think that you could swap out Tom Cruise with Jeremy Renner or recast him James Bond style much more easily than you could do that in with Vin Diesel. I think that, I disagree. I think that there's a kind of vanilla quality to what Tom Cruise is doing there, and I think what Vin Diesel's doing here is a little more specialised. I mean, I you, could, you, you could just put Chris Evans doing his Captain America performance in a Mission Impossible movie and call him Ethan Hunt and we can all go home. <laughs> I disagree, but sure. So yeah, I'll give it to Vin Diesel. It's probably the only time I will ever give Vin Diesel my MVP in a movie. Outside of this, his best performance is when he's playing a talking tree that can only say one word. But I will go with him for this. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I'm going to have to go for that that final chase with the truck. That, that heist... The one where everyone is is trying to catch up to each other for different reasons. It's just a very impressive piece of filmmaking. It's a good stunt sequence. You're seeing things that are being done practically that have a lot of the scope and speed to them that, as you put it at the beginning, Sean, it's the baby steps towards what this franchise will become. Looking back on it, having seen the others, you can see how that mentality has been amplified to take over the other 95% of the mm. film surrounding us as the franchise has continued. And and it is a very effective, smart, well-executed stunt sequence that is thrilling to watch and is thrilling to just know that these are actual human beings travelling at these speeds, clinging on to the sides of cars and trucks and driving under them. And there is something genuinely dangerous feeling about that yeah make no mistake if any of these stunts had gone wrong people would have died and yeah one can argue about the the sense in doing that for a film but there's no denying the effect it produces is is a visceralness that is hard to match so i'll go with that and physical stunts will always be more visceral to experience Mm. Easy, easily. 
I'll go next. For me, the MVP is the stunt people. Easily. For the simple fact that it is all so bloody seamless. It is all so well choreographed. They got those awards for a reason. Really. Driving under the truck. Everything hanging off of the truck. The, like, the practical explosions. The, down, all of the stunts down to the guy who's being, like, drowned to death in oil? I, I guess? Like, Mad props to that guy for not choking to death. I can't imagine they used actual petrol on the man. So. Of course not. Of course not. Probably sarsaparilla cordial or something. <laughs> That's a lot of caramel sauce. Hey, that would be awful anyway. I give mad props to everyone who was part of the stunt and production team on this movie. Because they did an exceptional job. Even if the cars do look a bit too loud for my tastes. When the police are coming in, trying to find the people who are doing the street racing and stuff, uh, yeah, it's all of the people who, who have their cars decked out like douchebags. Although I was really hoping that that pizza delivery person was going to partake in the race. Pizza delivery guy played by the director, Rob Cohen. My favourite scene is the scene where Dom is talking to Brian about the car that belonged to his father. That whole bit... It's just so well acted on Vin Diesel's part. And the part where he says... Mom. I watched my dad burn to death. I remembered hearing him scream. The people that were there said that he had died before the tanks blew. said it was me who was screaming. That's such a well-written piece of dialogue that is delivered so well. And I appreciate the dark turn they take Dom's character down. It's... He's not a perfect person like he would be in the future of the franchise. He's not... Like, he's a little bit more complicated than that. And I, I appreciate that scene for showing me what the character could be and would later refuse to be. I'd have to say my MVP is the same as John's. The the stunt drivers, the stunt people. It's just remarkable stuff. And like Lawson said, very, very dangerous. There's a whole lot of like ethical quandaries you come up against when it's people doing practical stunts like mm. this that could kill them. Because like we've mentioned before on the po- on this podcast, we have recognized the danger stunt people go through. Oh yeah, once or twice a year almost, a stunt person dies on a very major yeah. big budget production. And and it just, they don't get the security they should. No. Nor the attention and respect, let's be perfectly fair. And They should be up there with editors and directors as the people There really who... should be an Oscar for... Best stunt coordinator. Absolutely. Absolutely. If they've got it for best costume design, which I agree is a very important part of a film, they should have it for stunts, because it is just as important. Maybe more so. And for movies like this, these stunts are so important, because if they're not there, what's the point, you know? And they do remarkable stuff in this. I gave my MVP for speed was the drivers for that. And what they were able to accomplish with that. And while not on as huge a scale as that, this has a lot of that same quality to it. And and the cast learning on the driving as well really does work to making it very grounded. 
My favorite scene has to be the bit where Dom and Brian are racing towards that train, where the train's crossing. For me, it was never more tense as it was there. And it shouldn't have been. I know these characters make it into the rest of the franchise. I know. But it's shot so well, performed so well, and is so grounded that it feels like they're in danger. Yeah. And the the emotion leading up to the scene where Dom seems like he just wants to die... It just worked, man. It just really, really worked. And it was at that point where I'm like, do I love The Fast and the Furious? Look, I would be very supportive of the both of you watching the rest of these movies after you do Furious 7, after we do our episode on that. I think there's stuff to like in all of them, and... Certainly, I think you'll like the more recent ones than the the first ones, but also they've done a really good job of making the first ones unskippable because of how tightly they tie into the most recent ones. Yeah, if you had dropped us in in like at number seven or eight, I would just be completely lost. I would still probably like it, but I wouldn't understand. I still don't understand. <laughs> it's just odd. So... Obviously, we have Furious 7. No, this is an angry one. This isn't a quick one. This is an angry one. Yes. Right. Furious 7 is our deep dive for next week. It is available for streaming on Netflix, Binge, Foxtel Now, and Stan in Australia. Once again, Stan being the only service that has it available in 4K. It is also available for rental or purchase on the YouTube and Apple stores if anybody's interested and would like to follow along at home. So you can also reach us at each of our blogs. You can find John and I at On The Bright Side. You can find Lost at Exit Through The Candy Counter. You can also reach us at our Twitter. That has the new name and new banner profile picture. Still, it's got it's the same link as has been in all the previous episodes. So that is all still retained. You can comment on episode-specific feedback through the Twitter, or film recommendations for John and I. Because if you comment on podcast apps, it's it's on the show on the whole. You, you can't really do specific stuff for that. But commenting, rating, and subscribing looks very good to the algorithm under which we live our lives until the inevitable day when the robots we have mistreated you know, come for revenge, and all chickens come home to roost. I like the I like the fact that this is these visions of robotic apocalypse are getting increasingly more complex as your outros continue. <laughs> the detail increases. <laughs> it's going to be a complicated future, Lawson. What am I? What, what can I say? Look, man, I'm just saying the way we mistreat our machines, it's going to happen. So I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney, and I have been. And will continue to be genre.